Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. This week, I thought I would take a break from all the episodes that we have lined up for you, some really exciting stuff across the eight areas of life. I've got an episode with Dr. Jason Kaplan, a cardiologist, about heart health, which is really important at the moment because most of the people that are being impacted by the coronavirus, most people don't know that it's it's impacting their heart more than their respiratory uh, system. So we have that coming up. We have an amazing podcast coming up with Dr. Guy Winch on how to deal with loneliness and how to work from home in this new environment, which looks like it's going to last for a few months. But I thought for this week, I would present to you an episode that was recorded live at the last Upgrade Your Life event in 2020. January 25 seems like a long distant memory now, but it was on the first day of Upgrade Your Life that Dr. Jen Mann got up on stage and talked to us about the importance of raising happy and confident children. And she talked generally about parenting. And I think this is topical at the moment because so many of us are stuck at home and we're coming together as families. But there are two messages that I'm hearing out there. For some people, it's creating a lot of conflict. For others, it's bringing a family together. So at Upgrade Your Life, Dr. Jen Mann talked about a number of principles that helps bring families together. And in another episode of A Higher Branch, Uh, which I will be presenting to you over the next few weeks, is an episode where she talks about how to fix a relationship or preempt problems in a relationship. And I think that is an episode that I want to present to you over the next week or two, which will also help couples because the message I'm hearing about couples is that it's either bringing them closer together or it's actually causing more conflict. In China at the moment, they're experiencing a, a an accelerated rate of divorces on the back of people Uh, confined to their home. So it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to get closer together. I know in my household, it definitely has brought us closer together. It has brought me closer together to my children, especially my daughter, who's still living with us, who's doing her HSC at the moment. And we are, you know, uh, connecting more. We are, you know, playing board games more. Sure, we're watching television, but because there are no distractions, Uh, I find that our focus is more on each other. And uh, also my relationship with my wife has definitely improved because, uh, again, it is making us slow down and talk to one another rather than, you know, rushing from gyms or rushing from the office. So I think this is an amazing time, really, to rebuild the family unit, make it strong and provide the foundation for when we do get back out into the world and it will happen, then we are stronger. And uh, so I do see it as an opportunity. So that's why this episode I present to you was recorded live at Upgrade Your Life. And I think the tips that Dr. Jen Mann shared from the stage is very relevant at this point in time. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And without further ado, please listen to Dr. Jen Mann. Well, I stand here a humbled woman, (laughs) as if having twins isn't humbling enough. This, uh, what I'm about to tell you about occurred many, many years ago. 
I used to be known as the woman who had very chicly dressed kids at Mommy and Me. I'm not going to lie, I took pride in this. Everybody was like, oh, wow, they're twins. They've got these great outfits. They're not wearing the same thing, but it's kind of connected. And I was like, you know what? I'm operating on very little sleep. The fact that I have two kids, they're both dressed and breathing, I consider an accomplishment. But I really kind of got into this. It was very out of character, but I really got into kind of how well they were dressed, and it was really nice. Then one brutal morning, I'm sleeping, which I didn't do a lot of, still don't, but I'm sleeping, and I hear this voice, this little voice that says, Mommy, I dressed myself. And one of my eyes opened, kind of like Moby Dick, and I look over, and there she is, wearing, I think it was like blue and purple striped pants, a pink skirt, a long sleeve, navy blue t-shirt, on top of the navy blue t-shirt, which is on top of the pants and the skirt, she's wearing a camouflage shirt and there's like glitter. And I don't even remember all the glitter with one eye open and a hat with a big flower on it and an even bigger grin. And I had one of these moments as a parent, and we've been talking a lot today about those kind of little moments, those little moments that are seemingly kind of nothing moments, but they're actually significant moments. And I had this moment where I thought, you know, I could ask her to change, but I'm not going to. And I, and I did hear the voice of a, a colleague of mine who said, you can tell the best parents by the weirdest dress clothes their children are wearing. So I, it kind of got me through. And when I dropped the kids off at school that morning, I'll never forget, the director of the school said to me, oh, so we're going for homeless chic today. <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess I've graduated to good parent, according to this colleague of mine. But what it really, what was significant about it to me, and I think really to my daughters in that moment, and I'm hoping it's one of those moments, whether it fully registered or not, like you shared, where something shifted or something clicked for them. And had I asked them to change their clothes, before I tell you my thoughts on it, I want to know from you guys, what do you think the message would have been if I had asked them to change their clothes? What was, what was that? They can't decide for themselves, great. What else? You're not good enough, terrific. There's something wrong, there's something wrong with your choice. What else? Can't be trusted, yeah. I don't appreciate your creativity. They were clearly being, and by the way, the other one showed up too wearing a very similar outfit. <laughs> so the message would be, I don't appreciate your creativity. I don't want you to individuate from me and become an independent thinking person. It would also be that you need to conform to my sense of aesthetics if you want to please me and have my approval as a mom. But also, on some level, it's your job to take care of me and please me over what you want for yourself. You know, we're not talking about a dangerous decision, we're talking about clothes. So, to me, one of the most important kind of issues of it is the message, had I done that, that, I don't want you to make decisions for yourself. And making decisions is, like Jim talked about, it is one of the most important things 
that you can teach your kids. That the quality of your child's life is completely dependent on their ability to make good decisions. Who they socialize with, what they eat, whether they exercise, what their career is, how they spend their money, whether they use drugs or alcohol, whether they practice safe sex. And I know it's hard to think about our kids when it comes to sexuality, but that is in the mix. Who they choose as a sexual partner, who they marry, how many kids they have, all of that is about being a good decision maker. And as kids get older, what happens is that their autonomy their level of independence is supposed to increase. And I think it's one of the greatest challenges as a parent. Because when they start out, when they're born, we're making all their decisions for them. They don't do anything for themselves. We change their diapers, we get them dressed, we do everything. When they hit about 18 months, that's what we call the immersion of will. That's when you hear a lot of, oh, do you want, do you want to put on these pants? No. Do you, are you ready for lunch? No. Everything, the answer is always no. And I talk about a lot in my book, Super Baby. You never want to ask a yes or no question to a toddler. That is always a mistake. The answer is always no. You want to give two acceptable options. And by the way, and I'll be talking about relationships tomorrow. Not such a bad idea in your relationship either. Just saying. With adults, even at work. But all of these decisions gradually transfer from your child, or from you, to your child making them. And by the time you have a teenager, you want your teenager to be making the majority of the decisions, but you're kind of hanging back, overseeing them, and kind of jumping in as need be. It was Chaim Gannat who said, as parents, our need is to be needed. As teenagers, their need is to not need us. The conflict is real. And we experience it daily, as we help those we love become independent. And that's a huge part of our job as parents, to help our kids be independent. And it's particularly profound when it comes to teenagers. Because with teenagers, every decision they make is a testament to their autonomy. Even little things like, and I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in, in the States, there's a whole thing for girls. Like, are you an e-girl? Or are you a visco girl? Or are you a soft girl? All that stuff, what it is, so not important. But what is important is that it is self-definition and that we want to allow our kids to define themselves. And we want to show them faith by giving them the opportunity to make as many decisions for themselves as possible. And you want to remind yourself, and I'm constantly doing this, and it's, look, it's not easy as a parent. I'm sure you can all attest. I'm constantly reminding myself, and I want to encourage all of you to do this, there's going to be a day where I'm not there, whether it is because I'm no longer on this planet or they're at a party that I'm not at. I want them to be good decision makers, and they will be at their best as decision makers if I let them make mistakes, I let them experiment, I let them do their thing as much as possible while keeping an eye on, obviously, issues around safety. A really good example that has come up in my practice, we'll call the mom Karen, and we'll call her daughter Sophie. Karen and Sophie go to a store called Brandy Melville. I don't know if you guys have Brandy Melville, but for those of you who don't know it, it is a store in the United States that has a lot of my money <laughs> with two teenage girls. <laughs> they have a large part of my bank account. And what happens is they go in, and Karen sees sweaters and says, Sophie, 
we, you need a sweater. Let's get some sweaters. And she says, okay, great. We'll get, pick a sweater, whatever sweater you want. So Sophie goes, she sees a sweater, and she picks a green sweater that she likes. And Karen doesn't like that sweater. Karen thinks it's ugly. She thinks it looks terrible on her. She thinks it's not so flattering. But Sophie, Sophie really likes a green sweater. Karen's looking around the store and she goes, but look at this pink sweater. Have you seen the pink sweater? Isn't this pink sweater great? Sophie's like, yeah, I'm not so fond of it. Not so great. Uh, come, are you sure you don't want the pink sweater? Are you sure? Are you sure? And Karen is sending a message to Sophie. And again, this is one of those things that it's subtle, but it's a real message that she's getting. Now, Sophie's in a double bind. She's screwed if she does, she's screwed if she doesn't. What happens is, either she sells herself out, and I get it, it's just a sweater, but it's a metaphor. She sells herself out to please her mom and gets the sweater that she doesn't really like, and hopefully gets her mom's approval, or she gets the sweater that she likes, and then she has to worry that she no longer has her mom's approval. It's lose-lose. So, Again, it's one of these situations, and I think that a big part of parenting is these metaphors, that the things that we are dealing with with our kids aren't about the silly little things that are in front of us like sweaters. It's about the bigger issue. It's about individuation. Is Sophie going to learn to stand by her choice? Is she going to stand up for herself and say, like, no, I want that sweater? How is she going to define herself? Is she the girl who wears the green sweater that has one look or the pink sweater, which is another look? That's going to be important to her. And obviously, at that age, these kind of things feel like life or death decisions for kids, even though for us as adults, we can look at it and go, like, who cares? It's just a sweater. Just wear this one. But it's not. What we don't want is for her to feel like if she makes the wrong choice, that there's somehow a right and a wrong choice that she has messed up, and that in her decision-making process, that she has to do the right thing. We don't want to send that message early on. The other thing is that, well, we have a, an issue with Sophie and her mom. Now there, Sophie's in this double bind. What you want to ask yourself is, What's the message that Sophie's getting from her mom? When her mom puts her in this situation and says, yeah, you can have any sweater, and Sophie picks her sweater, and then the mom's like, yeah, I don't like that, that's not so good. What's the message? Tell me. What was that? I can't make the right decisions, but what about her relationship with her mom? Not consistent, right, mom is not consistent. What else? Go against your word, You're a liar. Exactly, exactly. So when she's in this double bind, what she learns is, I can't trust my mom. Now my mom may say, I can pick any sweater in the store, but I can't. We also know that she now is getting this idea, like I mentioned before, oh, there's a right and a wrong. Then my mom can ask me this question, but she does, she's not really looking for an answer of what I want. She's looking for the right answer, which is, kind of feels like a trick question. So it, it erodes their relationship. What she learns is that she can't trust Karen. And, well, this is not a situation of abuse. This is not something heinous. 
a lot of the interactions between parent and child are more subtle than that, especially when we're talking, a lot of you here, you're looking to do the advanced stuff. You're looking to take that parenting stuff to the next level. What we want is for our kids to understand at an early age that they are responsible for their choices, whether it's a sweater or their homework or anything like that. And that's crucial to them becoming adults. I got a call, I was home working, writing. I get a call from my daughter's school. And I, by the way, I got her permission. Any stories I share with you, I have permission because I have a respectful relationship with my kids. I gotta practice what I preach. So the school calls me and says, your daughter Mendez has forgotten her book and we need for you to come and bring the book. Can you bring the book? So I said, yes, I can come and bring the book, but no, I will not. I think there was an audible gasp. Like, they, 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 they said, what? They thought I was joking. I said, no, I'm not going to bring the book. They said, well, this has never happened before. I don't understand. You're available to bring the book, but you're not going to bring the book? I, I, I don't understand. So yeah, if I bring the book, how is she going to learn to not forget her book? I mean, kids have to suffer the consequences of their actions. It is adversity, whether it is forgetting her book or something more serious, that allows kid, kids to learn how to do things, learn how to suffer the consequences, become resilient. What we want is for kids to learn from their mistakes. I believe that in parenting, mistakes are some of our most valuable tools to teaching our kids. And too often I see parents who berate their kids, who do the, you know, you shouldn't do this, the finger wagging when it is such an opportunity. Don't miss an opportunity. When your kid makes a mistake, don't miss it. Because what we know is that it's a learning process, that it's kind of like a game of darts, that when you're playing darts and you throw one and you're looking to get to the bullseye and it's too far, you, you base the next throw on the last one so that you can alter it. It's the same thing with life. We base our decisions, and whether you have kids or not, this is very relevant, that we have to make those mistakes. You know, not only should we not be berating our kids for mistakes, we should not be berating ourselves for the mistakes. We should be using it as a valuable learning experience to alter our throw, because that is how we learn and it's how they learn. And to look at adversity as an opportunity for growth. And I know Goggins is going to talk about this a lot. It is such an important concept that we want to improve their weaknesses. Goggins talks a lot about turning weaknesses into strengths. We owe it to our kids to help them do that. You know, for a lot of us, we grew up not doing that, and we're now learning to do it. Let's help our kids early on while they're still young to learn how to do that. I also believe that that kind of mistakes and adversity is an opportunity for invention. And I'm gonna share a little story from my own childhood. Um, I was an elite level athlete. I did a sport called rhythmic gymnastics, you know, stuff with the ribbons and hoops, clubs, rope, ball. I was on the national team ultimately for a number of years, but the path there sucked. It, that said, it was without a doubt one of those, as we've been talking about today, unbelievable life-defining moments. What happened was I 
have a coach, or I had a coach, who was the top coach in the United States for rhythmic gymnastics. She's considered to be the mother of the sport. And of the 12 members of the junior team and the 12 members of the senior team, our team generally took up 16 to 18 of those slots because she was so hardcore and such a great coach. So my first year going to make nationals, and I trained all year long. You know, the, the hours we trained, you know, about four hours, six days a week at least. So the, it's not like little stuff. You, you're working all year. All you're thinking about is nationals, working up to nationals. And be, becoming a member of the national team was just like it. And when you become a member of the national team, they give you... USA sweatpants and t-shirts and sneakers and like it's this pride thing, leotards that say USA and red, white and blue. And this was like all I could think of and dream of. And I just ate, slept, breathed all this training thinking of nothing but making the team. So my first year at the end of the competition, the second day, I ended up not making the national team. I missed it by 0.05. Came in 13th place out of 12. And I'll never forget that my mom was there, and I had to go and congratulate every one of my teammates, hold back the tears, and you know, congratulations, so great, so happy for you. And I remember to this day that defining moment of going to the hotel, holding back the tears, getting in the elevator with my mom. And I remember the door closing and bursting into tears, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. I was just devastated that I was one of maybe three people who didn't make the national team on my team. But I took that, and as devastated as I was, I said, okay, I got to train harder. I got to do better. So year two. I'm at the end, that I do my ribbon routine. My coach looks at my mom, my coach is Russian, my coach said, it will be 9.0, it's national competition, 8.6, it was great. Now getting a great from her was a big deal. So my mom's all happy, the score comes up 7.05. A coach from the other team actually protested my score, which has never happened in gymnastics history. They upped it to a 7.15. End of day one, I'm in 13th place. My mother, who was a smoker at the time, got down on her knees and prayed and said, God, let this girl make the national team. I will never smoke again. I don't know what else to give up. I can't give up chocolate. I can't give up sex. God bless my mom. I will give up smoking. So. The next day, I think my mom, who's a tiny lady and does not take a lot of drugs, took like three Valiums, but was still like wired the next day. And I made the national team and I came in 12th place. But what I learned from that, and I was fortunate that I come from a home where adversity is believed to be something that you can get past. If you fail, you try again. A message I'm very grateful for. I thought, you know, I'm training with the top coach in the country. I'm with all these other teammates who have the same advantage that I have. So I have to do something more. So I started 
doubling up my training. I would go, I would train before our four-hour training together. I go and train another four hours myself. I started doing sports psychology. My dad said, I've heard of the sports psychology thing. I, I think you might want to try it. Started studying it, started doing it. The following year, I was first place. I won five gold medals out of five. No one could touch me. The reason why I share this story is because another parent could have looked at that and said, you know, you suck, maybe this isn't the sport for you. Or, you know, are you sure you wanna keep doing this? They might have discouraged me. They might have handled things very differently, but instead, what I took from this and what I want for you to take from this for your kids and for yourself is that we have these situations in our lives that we have opportunity. What I learned is I need to work harder. I need to be more disciplined. I need to come up with a training system. And I know Sam talks a lot about systems. And I think that it's so important that we don't just think about systems in terms of our work, but we have to think about it in terms of our personal life. I came up with systems to help me train. I started using sports psychology, and it ultimately helped me to learn about sports psychology, which helped me become a therapist, which helped me to help people. So it ultimately was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me that I didn't make the team. What kids need from their parents when it comes to failure is first, good role models. How you respond to your own failure and what your kids see from that is very important. And a lot of the time, parents think, oh, I don't want my kid to see my failure. I have to hide, I didn't, I didn't get the promotion, so I, I'm not gonna say anything, I'll just be grumpy at home and I'll deal with it on my own. But there's a lot of value to sharing your disappointments with your kids. And being able to say, yeah, I didn't get it, and here's what I'm gonna do so that next time I'm the guy or the woman who gets the promotion. They also need permission to struggle. And it's like Sam was talking about with the athletes at the Olympics, that their parents are sitting there, and part of the reason their parents are sitting there is because it really enforces to the athlete, you can fail and we're still gonna be here. You can win, you can lose, we're still gonna be here. They also need that opportunity for you to show them how they can grow from this experience instead of just letting them curl up in a ball and cry it out, and look, they, they need to do that too. But then the next step is, okay, how are we gonna learn from this? How are we gonna grow from this? Then the other thing is encouragement. You know, like Goggins talks about, we tend to just do the things that we're good at. Don't just do the things that you're good at, and don't let your kids just do the things that they're good at. Encourage them to do the things that are more difficult, that are a struggle. You know, one of my daughters is, struggles a little more with flexibility. The other one is like a rubber band. And she made a decision this year. She said, I'm gonna start stretching. I hate stretching, it sucks. And by the way, they're ice skaters. They, we do the get up at 4 a.m., go train kind of thing. And so this year, she worked and worked and worked and she got her splits. That is so incredible to me because that's, someone who's putting their mind to something and getting totally focused and achieving her goals. And that's the greatest gift that we can give our kids. You know, they need our help when they are struggling. You know, they need us, they need our empathy, they need our support, they need us to help them through those moments. 
I need a certain mother and daughter in the audience next to help me make a point. Uh, Lisa and, where are you? Ah, there, come on up. So one of the things that can be very challenging as a parent is when our child has a struggle. And I am guilty of this as well, that I want to problem solve. I want to fix it. I'm a fix-it person. I spend my life helping people change their lives and get better. So even I have to fight that natural instinct. So we're going to do a little exercise. Um, do we have a mic? Oh, good. You guys have a mic right here. Come on, you come on this side. Okay. And I want to make sure I pronounce your name right. It, is it Kristen? Uh, Kirsty. Kirsty. Okay, Kirsty. Thank you. So, Kirsty, um, you have been invited to a party by two friends on the same night, two different parties. One of your friend hates the other friend. She could even be your best friend. She doesn't want you to go to the other party. So, I like for you to tell your mom about the problem that you that you have. Um, Mom, I've been invited to two parties and I'm not really sure which one to go to because one of them is my best friends, but they hate the other person and I don't want to upset either of them and I'm not really sure which person's party to go to. Okay, I'm going to take you now, Lisa, through my seven-step system. Okay. okay. So the first thing I want you to do is I want you to repeat back to your daughter what the problem is, and make sure you understand it. Because one of the things that happens, and this happens in couples therapy a lot too, is that we think the problem is one thing, but it's different for the person that we love. So please repeat back to her what the problem is to the best of your understanding, in your own words. Okay, so Kirsty, you've got a problem. You've been invited to two parties, one by your best friend and another by another friend, and you're not sure which party to go to or what to do because you don't want to upset either. Did I find that do? correctly? Um, basically. What is she missing? The fact that my best friend hates the other. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yes. Okay. okay. So now the next thing I want you to do, Lisa, is I want you to show empathy. That's that's a really hard situation to be in. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you do? Do you need more? Do you need a little more than that? Um. <laughs> I think it's okay. Okay, okay, that, that did the job. Okay, now what I want for you to do, Lisa, is I want for you to imply to your daughter that you have faith in her that she can solve this problem. I know it's really hard, but I'm sure you can work out which one to go to or how best to approach the situation. Okay. That's better than her being like, oh, you should go to, to Susie's party. That, that other one, she's such a bitch. I never liked her. I think she's going down the wrong path, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, so it, it kind of feels pretty good when mom is like, I trust you to solve this problem. Okay, now what I want you to do is I want for you to help her examine what are the possibilities, what are the possible consequences of this problem? How could this play out? But you don't do it for her, you help her. Okay, so... I'm going to just give some names, all right? So, Gabby and Jess, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling these are real people. Okay. All right, so Gabby's your best friend, and what time is her party from? Um, 
6.30. And what time's Jess's party? Uh, 7. Okay. And where are the parties? Am I doing this right? Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> um, one is like 10 minutes from our house and the other five minutes in the opposite direction. Okay. <laughs> so what do you think the different options are with trying to resolve this? Good. I mean, like, I could technically go to both, except if one of them finds out I went to the other party, they'll be really mad at me, and I don't know if I want to do that. So I could go, but I'm not really sure what to do. Okay. Now what I want you to do, and the, uh, I want you to invite her to brainstorm with you. Now, here's the caveat with the brainstorm. I want her to come up with ideas, even ones that seem crazy, like, We'll rent a private plane and go from one party to the other. Like, I don't care how crazy it is. And as a mom, the challenge of that is like, well, we can't afford that. Well, we can't do that. Well, I'm busy that night, so I can't take you to that one. We need to put that aside. Put it on a shelf. Okay? Okay. Invite her to brainstorm. All right, Kirstie, let's go through some different options about what we can do or what you can do. Okay. Come up with some crazy ideas. <laughs> Anything. Um... We could invent a disguise so that when I'm at the party, I can pretend to be someone else. I love it. I love it. That's so creative. That's fantastic. Okay, keep going. And just take off this disguise for a few seconds just to take a photo to prove I was there. And post on Instagram? <laughs> oh, no, just show it to the friend individually so the other one will never find out I was okay. at the party. What are some other possibilities that you know, along the spectrum? Um, I could go to neither party and pretend I was away on vacation and like Great. post photos of me at some exotic place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep going. Um, I could go to one of the parties, but then make up a big like forgiveness party for the other one, just to say that I was really sorry to go to their party and not the other one. Okay. Now what I want for you to do is I want you to go over those with her. Make sure you got them all right. Okay, so the first one, you're in a disguise so that no one knows that it's you. Yeah. Um, the second one, you're on an exotic holiday and you're posting photos to show that you were away. Oh, and the third one, oh, you go to one party and then you do a forgiveness party for the other. Okay. Did she miss any of them? No. Okay. Then the last thing I want you to do, step seven, is after saying that, again, what I want you to reinforce is, she's a decision maker. I know you can make a great decision. I'm here for you if you need any help with that. Because one of the, the biggest, one of the, one of the biggest difficulties that we have as a parent is that moment instead of going, okay, now yeah. I'm gonna solve it for you. Isn't it your instinct yeah, as a mom to be absolutely. like, okay, here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to Gabby's party at 6.30 and then the other yeah. one at 7.30, you should show up for an hour and then you know, don't take any pictures, don't post them on social media and then I think you might be able to go under the, under the radar. Yeah. But what we wanna do is put that on you because as a teen, you're ready to make those decisions and it's your life. So, okay, let's get a round of applause. You guys did a fantastic job. Thank you so much. You're so helpful. So what we want to do in these kind of situations is maximize the learning opportunity. And we want to give our kids those opportunities to make mistakes and also to trust their intuition. 
I want to talk a little bit about intuition, because intuition is such a tricky thing. And great decision makers rely on intuition. It is one of those sort of foundations that we make decisions from. Most of us at some point in our life have been discouraged from listening to our instincts. That kids are born naturally intuitive, and that a lot of the time it is society, it's parents, it's people who want that child to please other people, shut that down. And in The Gift of Fear, Gavin DeBecker, for those of you who don't know, Gavin DeBecker is this amazing US security expert who wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. And in The Gift of Fear, he talks about how our intuition is one of our most valuable assets when it comes to keeping ourselves safe. And he talks about how there are 13 signs for intuition. They are nagging feelings, persistent thoughts, humor, especially gallows humor, kind of where you're making a joke like, oh yeah, that guy seems like a serial killer, ha ha ha. But what's really happening is that you're picking up on something and you're trying to figure out what to make of it and testing the waters, that humor is revealing. Wonder, anxiety, hunches, gut feelings, hesitation, suspicion, all of those things are important tools for your child that you want to encourage them to use. And to me, the perfect example, and this parents do this all the time, is you've got that relative that you don't see that often, and you bring your kid there, and at the end of the visit, you're, you've known these people your whole life, you're feeling kind of chummy, and you say to your, your kid, so Milo, Milo, go kiss Uncle Bob goodbye. It's time to go. And he's like, yeah, no, that's okay, Mom. No, thanks. And a lot of the time, what we tend to do is we're mortified. We go, oh, no, no, you have to kiss Uncle Bob. You got, you got to go say goodbye to him. But what we're doing in that moment, and it's another one of these situations where it's a teeny tiny moment that's actually a really big moment because you're teaching your child, don't listen to your instincts. You need to people please. It's way more important that you please this random uncle that you don't really know and don't really care that much about. I care more about you making me look good and not being uncomfortable than I do about your feelings. And it's really important to please others. And if your child is a girl in particular, there's what we call in psychology the tyranny of niceness. Where as women, we are taught, and we tend to teach our little girls unless we know better, oh, be nice. And usually be nice means forego what you want for someone else. Don't listen to your instincts for someone else. Put your needs on the back burner for someone else. And it's important that we teach our kids, especially our daughters, that that's not the way they need to operate in the world. That there tends to be a lot of gender inequality in how we raise our girls with that stuff. It was William Sears who said, what children believe about themselves is at the heart of who they become. And it's such a brilliant concept and it's been kind of touched on a lot today. You know, Jim talked about 
the message that he got from that teacher who said, oh, he's the one with the broken brain, and that that really impacted how he saw himself. We tend to do that with our kids. And what you need to know about self-esteem when it comes to kids developing a good self-esteem is that first, we are the mirrors for our kids. We are the mirrors for their sense of self, especially in the early years. And whether you have kids or not, you can probably think back to your own childhood where you got messages from your parents, subtle or not so subtle, about who they thought you were that you internalized that might not have been so accurate or maybe ultimately made you feel really bad about yourself. Parents are the foundation for self-esteem. And understand that if you had a bad childhood, this doesn't mean you can never have good self-esteem, but you have more of a challenge ahead of you than someone who had very loving, present parents. Children need to actually receive, and they seem like a, a contradiction, but they're not, a combination of total unconditional acceptance and love, and also a sense that there are standards. There's a guy named Stanley Coopersmith, and he studied kids in self-esteem, and what he found was the kids that had the best self-esteem had parents who loved them unconditionally, that the message was, no matter what you do, I'm here for you, I love you, but they had high standards. The parents knew what their kids were capable of, but when they fell short, they didn't emotionally beat them up, they continued to encourage them, but they held those standards. The other thing that kids really need to have good self-esteem is to have parents who really understand them. There was a, a book called Stranger in a Strange Land that came up with the concept of grokking someone, that to really get someone on a deep level, that kids need to feel like they are seen, heard, and understood, and that is, a crucial part of developing self-esteem. There are a few things I want to talk about that you can do in your home on a day-to-day -day basis when it comes to self-esteem. The first is no name-calling, not even joking. And sometimes what we tend to do is that our spouse, let's say, he's coming back from the kitchen carrying the popcorn to go do movie night, and he drops a popcorn. You, oh, you're such a klutz, ha, ha, ha. But what that does is it means, okay, in our house, name-calling is okay. If you can call your husband that name, then your kids can call you that name, they can call each other that name, and where does that escalation stop? And that kind of behavior, you don't realize, but can become passive-aggressive, that sometimes we end up leaking out how we really feel in those more subtle comments that don't feel so good. Be consistent with house rules. I like for kids to always know what's coming next. I don't like surprises for kids, and I also like for each kid to be treated equally. And look, granted, I'm not saying if you have a 16-year-old, their curfew should be the same as your eight-year-old, but what I am saying is that on the more core household level, okay, everybody helps clean out the dishwasher and put the dishes away. As long as your kids are capable, one kid should not be expected to do it without the other one. You also want to create a calm atmosphere, nonviolent, peaceful home. That is one of the most important things that you can do. And I've seen all too many couples who are just going at each other, who are just, there's constant tension and friction. And even if there isn't actual violence, this creates such a stress level in 
your kids. If you are in a home like that and you and your partner are struggling and going at each other, get therapy, talk to a couple's therapist, get advice, read some books, do something differently. But understand that that is probably one of the things, aside from obviously abuse, that is in a common household that people don't realize how much it affects their kids. It really drains their self-esteem. It makes it difficult to learn. It, it just has an enormous effect. Fourth, ask your kids their opinions. If you're planning a vacation, everyone's going, you know what the budget is? Let everyone be part of it. Whether it is a vacation or something smaller, when kids are included and they feel like they are part of the system, they are more likely to operate in a way that respects the system and respects each other. If they feel respected by you, they are going to be respectful towards you. Spend focused time together. In this day and age, it is so easy to never even look at each other. We spend more time looking at our screens than we do at each other's faces. And that needs to change. And look, I'm guilty of it too. I will tell you an honest story. My, one of my daughters at one point came to me and said, you're spending too much time on your phone. I really need for you to spend more time face to face with me. I was like, okay, A, that's a really good sign about my relationship with her that she's able to tell me. B, that's really great that she actually cares enough about our relationship that she wants my focus. And C, hey, I can do that. She's onto something. So I need to do that. You want to have that kind of relationship with your kid where you can get that kind of feedback. Help your child find his or her passions. To me, and obviously I come from a sports background, but one of the things that I see with kids in school is that when they don't have something to put their focus on, and it doesn't have to be sports, it can be music, it can be drawing, it can be reading, like whatever it is, but kids need to have something that they can hang their identity on that is positive. I can think of one little girl who I saw at one point in my practice who her mom didn't like to drive her places. She was a very nice lady, but just did not like to um, go to the effort of taking kids to lessons and picking them up and taking them back. And what ended up happening is this kid didn't have much of an identity of anything that she was particularly good at. She was okay academically, but so she kind of pinned her identity as she got older on her sexuality because she didn't have anything better to say like, this is who I am, this is what I'm proud of, this is where I have a sense of mastery. So instead, she pinned it on that, which was very destructive for her. Give honest and specific praise. I'm gonna talk more about praise in a, in a couple minutes, but make sure that it is honest and it is not fluff. Don't blow smoke up your kid's ass. It's easy to do because we think our kids are all amazing, and they are, and we don't want to see them upset, and we want to build them up, but giving them false praise does not build them up. Reframe your child's idiosyncratic ways. You have a kid who is very loud, who asks too much questions. Instead, help them to know that you see them as curious and passionate and intense, and that you can respect that about him or her. When you screw up, make sure that you apologize and you demonstrate how to make amends. If you don't do it, 
your kids will not do it. Seeing you do that for them shows them that you respect them, and that actually helps their self-esteem. Show up for your kid. And I know it may seem obvious, but show up for those important events, especially when your kid has requested. We're all busy. If you're here, I have no doubt you are a busy professional. You don't have a lot of free time. But if there's something that's really important to your kid, do everything that you can to show up for that. Because in a few years, if you don't show up, I see all the time in my practice where kids ask, they ask, they ask, there's no show up, and then they stop asking. So I want to go back to praise for a minute. I think that this generation of parents, more than any generation, has really misunderstood the self-esteem movement. And I think that it's had a terrible effect on our kids. There are too many parents who are building their kids up. You can do anything. Everything's great. Oh, you're wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I want kids to be encouraged. But you know, when you have like a four foot 11 kid who has reached full growth and you're saying, you can be a basketball player, you can do anything. Like we need to be realistic in the feedback that we give them. And when it comes to praise, there's a fascinating study and, and believe me, I can be a praise junkie. Uh, before I read the study I'm about to share with you, I actually, this is kind of embarrassing, but I'll share this anyway. Um, one of my daughters, they were in diapers at the time, I won't mention any names, but one of them passed gas. And I was like, that is great. You did such a good job. Like, I can't believe that I created these little beings that have like working body parts. And like, but I realized, after, I was like, I've really gone too far. Like, this is crazy. I need to, to rein myself back because I don't want them to fall into that kind of experience of, oh, anything I do is great. You know what, there's some things our kids do that are great, some things that are just okay, and some things not so good. So there's this researcher named Carol Zwick at Columbia University who studies praise. And what she did was she took a group of fourth graders and she gave them a simple test. And upon completion of the test, she divided them into two different groups. One group got praise for their intelligence. You're so smart, you, oh, that's great. Then the other group, they were praised for the process. You worked really hard on this. What happened was afterwards that they gave the students a choice between doing for their next test a more difficult one or an easier one. What happened was the children who were praised for their effort, 90% of them chose the more difficult one. With the ones who were praised for their intelligence, the vast majority chose the easy one. Because what happens is, when we tell our kids, oh, you're so smart for doing that, they become worried that they're gonna lose the title. Oh, I, I better not, like, I don't know if I was so good at that test. If they give me another one, then I might not do so good, and they might not think I'm smart. Whereas if you compliment them on the process and the effort, if it's real, again, it has to be real, then what happens is they are able to have a sense of mastery and self-efficacy where they go, oh, I can make a difference. That hard work really pays off. So you want to make sure that you keep it three things with praise. One, be specific. You don't want to give praise that you give to anyone. If you say, good job, that could be your mailman. That's not specific. Two, emphasis on the effort, not the outcome. 
So not you're so brilliant, you're so amazing, but I see how, how hard you worked. And then three, it needs to be genuine. It needs to be heartfelt and real. So before we finish up, and I do want to take some questions, um, I want to talk about one other thing. Your relationship with your child. I can tell you all the great things about how to help your kid be a good decision maker or how to have good self-esteem, but if you don't have a great relationship with your child, they're not gonna care about all those great things that you're doing. So I wanna tell you a few things that I recommend in order to do that. And when I, before I left to come here, I was in the car driving my daughters from ice skating at like four in the morning. And I said to them, you know, I'm doing this lecture on parenting. What do you guys think is the most important thing for me to talk about? And they said, honesty. And they said to me, and my philosophy has always been, and I think that what Alessandra said before about Santa Claus is like right on point, that they said to me, you have always been honest with us. You told us there was no Santa Claus, you told us there was no tooth fairy, and look, I got a lot of flack from that. There are a lot of people who disagree with me, a lot of therapists in the field who don't agree, but for me, I felt like I want to always be that honest source of information, and I'm willing to make that kind of sacrifice in order to be that person, because I want them to know any time they come to me, they're gonna get truth. Sometimes the truth is gonna be, I'm not comfortable talking about that, or you know, I need to save that answer until you're older, but they're always gonna get truth from me. When Quincy, my, my daughter, was about four years old, and I can still see it right now, she's naked, and she's sitting on a chair, on the rocking chair that I used to feed her in when she was an itty-bitty baby. She looks at me, and she says, Mama, I understand about the sperm. She did this with her hand. And I understand about the egg, but how do they come together? <laughs> she was four. And I had a moment, and I said, do you really want to know? And she said, yes. I said, okay. So I said to her sister, would you like to know too? Yes, I would. So we sat down, we had a little family meeting, we explained how it got in there. And Mendez looks at me and she goes, do you and daddy do that? Said, yes, we do. Can I watch? <laughs> I don't really understand this completely, mom. Can I watch? I said, Sorry, baby, you can't. That, that's not appropriate, but I really understand your curiosity because it does seem kind of strange, doesn't it? She said, yeah. I said, but I can get you some books on it that have pictures that are age appropriate. We can totally do that. The second thing that you want to have for your relationship with your kids is mutual respect. We tend to spend a lot of time as parents, especially if we had very authoritative parents, thinking about them respecting us. I want them to respect me. But what most people don't think about is that respect is reciprocal, that it is a give and take process, that you need to treat your child with respect in order for them to want to treat you with respect.
And there are parents who try to create that with fear. I'm going to scare them into respecting me. I'm going to make sure she knows, you have to say please or thank you, or I'm going to be screaming at you, or if you do this, then I'm going to be, you know, the worst case scenario, I'm going to be violent with you. That's not respect. That's fear. And to me, respect starts very early on. When my kids were very little, I wouldn't change a diaper without saying, now I'm going to change your diaper. Now I'm going to open the diaper. This is what I'm going to do. Because to me, that's respect. This is a human being who is in a very vulnerable position. So the other thing is, like I mentioned before, consistency. Say what you mean and mean what you say and follow through. Don't make threats. Don't say you're gonna, a punishment's gonna happen that's not gonna happen. You're better off not having a consequence than claiming a consequence that you're not going to implement. You lose credibility and that hurts your relationship when you say, oh, you're gonna be grounded, but then you don't do it. I like for kids to know, oh, if I break that rule, I know exactly what's gonna happen. We have a rule in the car on the way to ice skating. You don't get to be on your phone unless you've asked permission first. If you are on your phone, I try and go, hey, Mendez, you're on your phone. Yeah, she, I don't say where she just hands me the phone. She knows she's lost it for the rest of the ride because there's consistency. Connection. Connection is one of the most important things when it comes to parenting. It's also, and I'm gonna talk a lot about connection tomorrow when it comes to relationships. Like Sam was talking about, we all have an innate desire for belonging, for connection, to feel seen, heard, and understood. And what you wanna keep in mind is that, and this is a really important concept, that when kids feel good, they act good. If your kid is not acting good, then you want to look at it not from the perspective of, you know, why is this kid being so difficult? Like, oh, I have the most difficult kid. Instead, what's going on in my child's internal life that they're acting this way? What can I do? What can I provide that might help them? What is the gap that is happening for my child that they are acting out this way? And if you can view it that way, you're far more likely to turn it into a positive and to help nurture that relationship. The other thing is no judgment. That the older your kids get, ideally, the more they're going to tell you things that are difficult to hear. The more you judge them, the more they get the feeling that, oh, I can't tell my mom that, I can't tell my dad that, the less information you're going to get. It's an important strategy for information acquisition. And I understand there are times where they tell you something, you're like, oh my God, you did what? Like, that's not safe. And, but what you have to do is kind of keep the reaction to yourself, hear it, and if, look, if it's a safety issue, you deal with it later, but first, what you do is you want to empathize with them. That must have been really hard. Wow, that was scary. I can't believe you got into the car with that kid. They were driving so fast. What was that like for you? You want to hear that. I'm so glad you told me about this. It really means so much to me that you shared this with me. Your job is to listen and support and to problem solve later. The last thing I want to talk about in that is, actually second to last, is boundaries. That it's very important to have clear and consistent boundaries. That kids will kick and scream and say they hate the rules, that's not fair, don't make me do that, that's not what I want to do, but if you think of boundaries and rules in a household, like 
when you're driving your car. Imagine if there were no lines on the street, if there were no stop signs, if there were no stoplights, it would be chaos. It, like, I get anxious just thinking about it. That's what a house without rules and boundaries is like. Make sure that the rules and the boundaries are consistent and they are clear and that your kids really understand them. That is something that will make them feel safe and secure. And then last but not least, get feedback from your kids. Uh, I don't know if they have Yelp in Australia. Do they have Yelp reviews? Okay. Get a Yelp review from your kids. How am I doing as a parent? I got that great feedback from my daughter because I asked, hey, what can I be doing better as a mom? Well, you know, you can put your phone down a little more. Get that feedback because it shows that you are invested in the relationship. It shows that you are open to feedback and criticism, which we want our kids to be open to, and everything we do, we are modeling for our kids what we are hoping for them to do. So every once, maybe once every six months, just check in at the right moment. Hey, how am I doing as a, as a dad? How am I doing as a mom? Is there anything you wish I could do differently? You'd be surprised. A lot of parents are like, oh, well, I'm not going to do that because my kids can be like, yeah, you suck because you don't give me candy every day or like something totally unreasonable. But you'd be surprised that kids actually give you really clear feedback that is quite reasonable. You know, parenting is it's a humbling experience, and it is something that must be done in such a mindful, careful way in order to really get the best results from our kids. So I, I hope that this has been helpful. I would love to open the floor to some questions from all of you. You can ask me anything. Yes. I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. Uh-huh. The eight-year-old seems to get very jealous of the five-year-old because about what you talked about before, he's probably not capable of doing some of the things mm -hmm. she can do now. But she's like, well, how come he doesn't get to do that? Or how come he gets that and I don't? And uh -huh. I'm just wondering how you, how you deal with things like that. Like it's how much time are you spending one-on-one -on -one with each of your kids? Not enough for the sandwich, but I, I, I get it. I feel yeah. you. I have twins. I totally get it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably two to three hours a day. I probably get. To, what was that? I probably get two or three hours a day with both of them. Like two or three hours a day. Shared, shared with them. Yeah, shared. But I'm talking about just you with your eight-year-old, yeah. five-year-old not there, or you with your five-year-old and the eight-year-old not there. Yeah, not very often. Okay, I totally get it. No judgment. Yeah, totally yeah, get it. Sorry. That said, the greatest antidote to that jealousy and that um, tension is one-on-one -on -one time. Yeah. And understand, it doesn't have to be a, oh, we're going to do a whole day together. I'm taking him to the movie and to get candy and we're going to lunch. Just 10 minutes, 20 minutes if you can pull it off, where you get on the floor with your kid and you are at his level. Because the other thing that we kind of tend to do and it's, we're exhausted, a lot of the kid games aren't necessarily fun, is we want them to spend time with us on our terms. Like, oh, we're gonna read now. Well, but when you do that special one-on-one -on -one time, it should be on his or her terms. Hey, I've got 20 minutes to spend with you. What would you like to do? We can do anything. Yeah. Get on the floor, like, play the games, do the Legos, whatever it is that your child is into, that will feed their heart in a way that will help reduce that jealousy. Yep. 
Anyone else? Yes. How do you help kids find their passion? That's a great question. Exposure to as much as possible and also getting their feedback. If you're reading books about sports and your kid goes, oh yeah, that, I, that looks like something I could do, then you want to encourage that. A, a lot of the time schools have a lot of different PE programs, physical education where they're exposed to things, but bring them out. You know, bring them to the park, bring a soccer ball, grab a baseball, you know, go get some paints, you know, experiment, expose them to as much as possible yourself. And the other thing, when it comes to lessons, you know, hey, would you like to take soccer lessons? Would you like to take baseball? Would you like, ask the question. Then, now here's the thing. A lot of the time what happens is your kid says, yes, I want to do that. They take a class, you sign them up for 10 classes, and then they're like, yeah, I don't want to do this. Here's my rule about that. I let them know at the beginning, you know, the, the, the package is 10 classes. You may not love it, but whether you love it or not, we're going to complete it. Because that teaches them, even if I don't like something, I complete it. And to me, that's a very important message. Next question. Uh, hello, over here. They gave me a mic. Where? To your uh. right. To your right, further right. <laughs> All the oh, way oh, other side oh of the there, room. okay. So, Hi. Sorry, I saw another hand up over there. Yeah, That's okay. okay. <laughs> yes. Hi, um, I don't have any kids, but yeah. I have some parents that I feel like I end up parenting sometimes because they call me and ask for advice on parenting my younger siblings, their finances, their relationships. And uh, it's caused me to take on a lot of unnecessary stress. Oh, yeah. Um, so I guess my question is, how was the best way to handle that situation when the roles are reversed? When, Great question. You know, the, yeah. yeah, so they bring that kind of stuff to the table. Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. And one of the best ways to do that is in advance, like in between questions that they ask you, to call them up or if you see them on a regular basis, say, you know, I've been really working on taking better care of myself and I've been really working on trying to have a better relationship with everyone in my life, including you. And one of the things I realize that I do is I, is I give a lot of advice and I take care of a lot of people in a lot of different ways and answer a lot of questions. And sometimes it's at my own expense. And I have a lot of confidence in you. You raised me. You did a great job. Here I am standing. I'm going to start to let you make more of those decisions to yourself. So I wanted to give you the heads up. I know that we've been doing this a long time where you call me and you ask for advice on my sister. It's not appropriate for me to be the one to give you that advice. You know, you're the parents and I'm your son. And so I'm gonna let you handle that. And if you need the number of a therapist, if you want, I can ask around someone who can give you advice who's a professional, but um, I'm gonna start to kind of pull back from that so I can just, Instead, spend my time loving you and having a nice relationship with you instead of advising you. Understand, when you change the system, anytime you're in a family system, everyone is linked together. If you've done a good job, there should be fallout. There should be anger. <laughs> there should be frustration. Well, why aren't you giving me advice? But, but you, I know you said that, but, but just one more, just one more time. So understand, if people are getting pissed off at you, you are practicing good self-care. And when they call the next time, because they'll forget, even if they say they understand, 
if they call and ask for that kind of advice, what you want to do is say, remember that conversation we had where we talked about, I'm going to make better boundaries? I'm so sorry, I'm not going to be able to answer this question for you, but let me know if you want me to see if I can help you find someone who has more experience who can. Okay, last question. Thank you. Yes. Sure. Um, First one, I've got a a newborn at home and a four-year-old. So the four-year-old is obviously the baby for a minute, right? Yeah. Um, Now, we've got a couple other kids. We've never really ran into this problem this way. But since the newborn's got home, he's not freaking out or whatever, but he won't go anywhere near the kid. Mm -hmm. And it's been, you know, it's been, I think it's almost a week now. Yeah. And that never, we never really had that with the other kids. How many so, do you have all together? All together, five. Wow. Yeah. My God, so I they're all down evenly to you spaced first. out. Yeah. They're all evenly spaced out. One yeah. of them is uh, is eighteen now, so he's kind yeah. of doing his own thing. So I don't want to, kind of want to minimize his responsibility because he had mm-hmm. probably the most in the house out of the kids. Sure. So I'm trying to take that away from him. Yeah. New ones come in. My twelve year old is kind of next in line for that role. So second part of the question was. The eight-year-old has a higher work ethic than my 12-year-old. She's definitely more disciplined, but he's got a higher work ethic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how this transition is the first time I'm going through it with one that's this old, so he's kind of out. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether or not she's ready to kind of fill in that, those, that, that role that her older brother What's, the, what's the role that she'd be filling in? Well, the older sibling. The older sibling. Okay. The leader but what does that involve on a day-to-day basis in oh, your household? On a day-to-day basis, yeah. it's it's kind of like the role model of the minions. Okay. So the one that, that they kind of go to for their guidance in their little world, stuff that I don't really want to intrude on. Like, Can you they, give me an example? Because that sounds like a lot of pressure. I'm feeling stressed out just thinking about being that role model <laughs> kid in your family. So, uh, like, little things. Uh, yeah. Every day, you know, the house gets a little untidy. Everyone's got their own toys or whatever they got going on. So at a certain point during the day, and my daughter kind of really takes the reins and she doesn't like a mess, so she's always yeah. in the other kids to clean up after themselves. And we obviously promote that as yeah. well. Everyone kind of does their own thing. It helps the entire household because it's a big house. Okay. Uh, and the house itself is pretty sure. big as well. But not just the cleanup stage, but also the setting the example because they're so closely linked in their school. So one might be a, you know, incredible athlete sure. or artist or whatever and yeah. setting that work ethic for the next one down. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Let me address that and then I'll address the baby and the four-year-old. Um, what concerns me about the dynamic, as you described it, is that it's a lot of pressure for kids. And I get that what tends to happen in large families like yours is that one becomes kind of almost a stand-in secondary parent for the others. But what I like to avoid in big households like yours is kids feeling like they have to be a parent and that they have all this pressure to, oh, I have to put away my toys perfectly because if I don't, all of my siblings won't. So I would pull back on the pressure. I wouldn't leave it to the kids. I'd leave it to the parents to parent and to the kids to be kids. And I think it's fine to say like, oh, you already started picking up your toys. Thanks so much for doing that. Hey, let's all pick up our toys. But I don't want for any of the kids in your family to feel the burden of being a secondary parent. It's, it's too much. Regarding the, the baby and the four-year-old, what is your four-year-old telling you by 
not interacting with the baby. It's, it's probably similar to the rest of them, just a bit of jealousy. Obviously, the, right. you know, the, the attention and et cetera, from especially it, the mom. Like, I'm at home yeah. all day with them through everything. Yeah, um, wow, that's awesome. For, well, yeah. for the most part, anyway. Yeah. Um, and she and, you know, my wife's there as much as she can. Anyway, we both are trying to avoid yeah. work as much as possible so we can stay with the kids sure. during the times that they're awake and at home. Um, but so yeah, I think really what, present, what your son is doing is, if I don't see that baby, if I don't hear that baby, if I don't talk about that baby, that baby's going to stop existing. Like if I close my eyes and hide and you can't see me, then I'm gone, which is developmentally very appropriate. Yeah, he's at, been hiding that under stuff all the time. Makes sense. What he really wants is for that baby to disappear. And the reason why he wants that baby to disappear is... He wants more attention, he wants more focus, he wants more love. So what I would do, kind of similar to this gentleman over here, is I would spend some one-on-one -on -one time with him. Because what he needs is to feel special, to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel important. And I would even acknowledge to him sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time, kids that age don't have the words for their feelings. And start to give him the words. I wonder if it's, if it's hard for you that the baby's here now, and I'm wondering if maybe you wish the baby wasn't even here. Like, give him permission to say the unsayable. I bet you wish that baby would disappear. Because sometimes there's enormous relief, because kids struggle with these big feelings where they feel like, I'm feeling this terrible thing I shouldn't feel. It's ugly, it's bad. If people knew, they'd think I was bad. But when you say it and you normalize it, then it's like an, such a relief for them. You know, I, I bet that you could use a little time, just dad and me, and I, I bet you wish that baby would disappear. I don't blame you. It's hard to hear all that crying and have our family disrupted. I don't blame you. I could understand that. And it, it sets them free. Thanks, Doc. That made perfect sense. You got thank it. You. My pleasure. So thank you all so much for coming today and hearing all the things I have to say. And I'm going to be signing some books and hanging out if any of you have any other questions. <laughs>